And now I'd like to introduce Luella, who's going to be talking to us about how to um, run um, a multi-country qualitative study um, and not lose it along the way. Hi, Luella. Hi, Steve. How are you going? Hi, everyone. Very well. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks to Steve and thanks to all the presenters for some really informative talks. I've really enjoyed the conference so far. I'd like to acknowledge that this presentation is being held on the traditional lands of the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to elders past, present and future. Thanks to Design Research for having me here today and thank you all for coming along. As researchers, we spend much of our time buried in our research projects, so much so that sometimes it's nice to come up for air and reflect on what we've been doing and in particular what we could be doing better. And it was in one of those moments of reflection that I decided to put pen to paper and take the plunge and prepare this talk. So this is me. I've been working in the UXCF space for over 20 years and I've been focusing on experience research for the past five years. And this is Tony and Sean, my colleagues, and also the owners of UN. We're an experienced research and strategy consultancy based here in Melbourne. And along with Tony and Sean, there's a number of experienced research consultants like me in our practice. I think it's safe to say that collectively we'd have well over a century of UX research under our belts. And it's such a privilege to be able to be in such a powerhouse of knowledge and experience. So I didn't bat an eyelid when I was given the lead on a large multi-country discovery project. These kinds of remote projects are commonplace for us these days, and it makes for client, sense for clients to tap into their customer base around the world. Currently about 95% of UN's research is conducted remotely, and with our virtual viewing room, our clients can watch a live stream of our sessions from anywhere in the world. In fact, I was really excited to reach out for folks around the globe, and the size of this project wasn't of a particular concern. At U1, we've done some pretty crazy big projects with some scary deadlines. And this one looked like a bit of a walk in the park in comparison. In fact, Sean presented at this conference a couple of years ago on one of those crazy big um, global projects that we did. But as we started our planning and implementing, this project did throw up some unusual challenges. And that's why I thought it would make a great case study and also allow me to humbly admit that you can teach an old dog like me new tricks. First, I'll give you a bit of a brief project background. Um, just note that because it's still commercial in confidence, I'll have to speak more generally, but you'll get the gist. The bulk of my talk will focus on those challenges that I mentioned and what we did about them. And I've broken those into four areas, scheduling, recruitment, language barriers and conducting interviews. Finally, I'll do a quick wrap up and if there's time, open things up to questions. Um, if you think of a question as we go along, please post it in the chat. And if there's time, I'll address those at the end of my talk. Our client has a global digital marketplace and wanted to learn more about its prospective customers from key markets in North and South America, Europe, West and South Asia. Um, yeah, those, those five regions. So Yuan was engaged to conduct 50 depth interviews and 
our participants were web and code professionals who worked for either small to medium agencies, large organisations, or were freelancing. These guys were specifically um, people with hands on the tools. Uh, so, yeah, not necessarily designers or researchers like myself. Um, we really wanted them to be using different stacks and the focus of a lot of our um, discussion in the sessions was, yeah, about what stacks they used and about the challenges that they had in their workplaces. Our participants were from seven countries, the USA, the UK, Germany, France, Turkey, India, and Brazil. And this meant conducting interviews across 16 different time zones. The interviews were in English, but for many of our participants, this was their second or sometimes even their third or fourth language. Apart from that geographic reach, this was a pretty standard discovery project for U1, but we put some extra fat in the timeline for recruiting across so many different territories and also for the interview schedule. All in all, we allowed two weeks for the setup two weeks for setup, which included recruitment, two weeks for interviews, and two weeks for synthesis and reporting. The first area I'd like to talk about is scheduling. When we started mapping out the schedule to incorporate those 16 time zones, we quickly found that there are only limited times where the participants' time zones comfortably intersected with ours here in Australia. Unless, of course, you're happy to conduct interviews in the wee hours of the morning for days on end. This conference actually is a case in point, and you would have noticed that most of our international presenters are joining us at very in inconvenient times for them, either very early or very late in the day. Even with careful mapping, we still had to do some of those sessions at 6am, uh, and yeah, I was also burning the midnight hour quite a few times. And funnily enough, we didn't see many of our clients in those virtual viewing room sessions uh, for, those, uh, for those early bird sessions. So if you're doing this kind of global project, I highly recommend plotting out your overall recruitment schedule in a visual way. That way you can start to see the blocks of time that will work for each time zone and where there's overlaps. Then once you know what works for each time zone, you can start to specify this in your recruitment briefs. When you're only dealing with a couple of time zones, it's fine to be open-ended with times and let the recruiters do the scheduling or even allow the participants to schedule themselves, which is great when you're using online recruitment platforms. And we do this kind of thing all the time with our projects. But once you move into multiple time zones, I recommend sticking to a strict schedule. Otherwise, it starts getting very messy very quickly. Knowing those compatible times made it um, much easier for rescheduling for things like no-shows or cancellations. And it also avoided too much blowout in the timeline. In projects with lots of interviews, we at U1 find it effective to use multiple moderators to cover more interviews in a shorter time frame. However, in this project, we realised that the more moderators we had, the more complicated the scheduling became. In the end, we decided that having two moderators was optimal and we gave each set countries and times for the interviews. So if you're doing a multi-country project, it's worth weighing up those pros and cons of using one, more than one moderator um, and looking at the requirements of your project so that you can find that ultimate sweet spot. 
So pretty much in those crucial first weeks of the projects, I was also elbow deep in packing up our house to make the move to regional Victoria. Just a tip, if you're taking on a big global study, I strongly recommend that you don't try and move house at the same time. With our recruitment, we decided to use online recruitment platforms for finding participants in the USA, UK, Germany and France, and to partner with local recruiters in Turkey, India and Brazil. There's certainly many advantages in doing online recruitment, obviously cost, great flexibility with the platforms, the screening and scheduling is um, really easy. They have built-in remote com um, compatibility. Um, the communication with participants is, is a cinch and actually really lovely to have that sort of direct messaging with participants. And you have complete control over your recruitment. We'd initially planned to use just one online platform, and that was a platform that specialised in recruiting professionals given the cohorts that we were looking at. If we'd been able to source our participants from just that one platform, it would have been smooth sailing. But as it turned out, we had to use three different online platforms just to meet our quotas for the various um, countries in our study. One thing to note with the online platforms is that they're all very different in their pricing, processes, interfaces, and the range of participants on their panels. Some worked really well for this project and some, because of the requirements of our project, were quite frankly a complete waste of our time. If you opt to, do online, if you opt to use online recruitment platforms, just keep this in mind and take the time to familiarise yourself with each of the platforms that you plan to use. It's quite possible that some platforms won't have participants for your specific recruitment requirements, even though they may say they do. And knowing this will save you buckets of time and headaches. There's no guarantee that you'll be able to recruit everyone you need from just one platform, especially if you have niche requirements. So make sure you have a contingency uh, and think about using either other platforms or other recruitment methods. And while one of the great things about the online platforms is that participants book themselves for their sessions, you've got to love that. As I said before, for us, this would have been a complete nightmare, and I'm really glad that we were very specific about locking in set times, which you can do in the platforms. We opted to work with lo local recruiters, as I said, in Turkey, India, and Brazil. This was mainly because the online platforms didn't really cover off those regions for the cohorts we were looking for. But we also thought we needed um, much more local expertise for those countries. U1's a member of the UX Fellows. That's a global network of experienced research companies in 23 countries around the world. We've worked with quite a few of the partner companies on various international projects. Um, so we were able to reach out to these folks who put us in touch with the recruiter or in some cases did the recruitment for us. But even with our existing relationships, our recruitment experience in each of these countries was quite different and often challenging. Firstly, with the time differences, there was often a long wait between sending an email and getting a response. And this isn't great for the stress levels when timelines are tight. So you might want to factor that into your initial planning. 
Even though all our recruiters had good spoken English, they were often weaker with written English, and that had an impact on how well, well they could meet the recruitment briefs. In retrospect, I'd build in more phone or remote communications that I would ordinarily for local projects. Um, and this would also be a great way for building rapport with some of those newer recruiters that we hadn't worked with before. I also had to spend a lot more time ensuring that the recruiters understood the brief. And even when I was sure that they did understand, I still spent a lot of time, vet, much more time than usual vetting prospects and pushing back on some potentials that they put forward. In fact, I was surprised at how often things got lost in translation. And while there wasn't really any way to preempt all of the things that were, were going off the rails here and when that would happen, for these kinds of projects, I'd recommend a much more hands-on approach with your recruitment uh, and also building that into your timelines up front. I certainly wasn't prepared for some of the different work styles of our partners. And look, they're absolutely legitimate work styles in the countries that they're working in. It's just stuff that I wasn't used to. So on one extreme, I was overwhelmed by the regularity and intensity of a recruiter's communication. And in another, I had a recruiter who would go AWOL for days, leaving me wondering what was going on. In fact, I learned that Turkey has a huge amount of public holidays. Sometimes you have no option but to roll with those sorts of punches, but anticipating that different countries and cultures have different work styles will certainly help you avoid any nasty surprises. And of course, as Murphy's Law always dictates, moving day landed right in the thick of recruitment. And while it was an exciting day for the dogs, it's not something that I ever want to face in my lifetime again. But in a fresh new home, albeit with boxes packed to the ceiling around my desk, I continued to wrangle the project. Language was probably the biggest challenge of this project, both in terms of working with overseas recruiters, as I've just flagged, but also in conducting interviews with participants for whom English may be a second, third or fourth language. I've already spoken to the challenge of communicating recruit with recruiters where English isn't their first language, but when it comes to recruitment specifications, one big thing to realise is that your spec, your English spec, is going to be translated into a non-English screener, and then that could either be a written questionnaire that prospects complete online, or a script spoken by recruiters over the phone, or it could be a mix of both of those. I had no way of checking these screeners. Unfortunately, I don't speak any other languages. And so I had to trust that the recruiter had nailed the translation of my brief. Now, I could have insisted that the recruiters only used English screeners and scripts, but I think that would have really limited the scope of our recruitment and our recruiters would have really struggled if I'd pushed that requirement. To manage this challenge, I recommend that you write very simple, plain English recruitment briefs and review these to remove any ambiguities. Getting a second pair of eyes over it, you might think that it's clear and simple, um, but getting a second or third pair of eyes over that is really, really useful. Depending on your project, it might also be money well spent to have your screeners and scripts professionally translated in advance. 
For this project, there wasn't any usability testing component to our sessions. So we only required our past participants to have a reasonable spoken English level. But what we think is reasonable and what our recruiters think is reasonable can sometimes be quite different. To assess our participants' spoken English levels, we asked them to send in a short video introducing themselves and talking about the work that they did. This was a simple yet effective way for assessing each participant's verbal skills, and it also gave us the opportunity to find replacements if necessary. And while participants from non-English backgrounds may have good spoken English, just remember that their ability to listen to and understand complex spoken English will vary considerably, especially if you take into account our, our quite unusual Australian accents. So take care with your moderation guides to ensure these, like your recruitment briefs, are written in simple plain English and particularly avoid any colloquialisms or complex terminology. Um, and also in, in the interview phase, stick to your briefs, stick to the way that you've uh, written those mod guide questions. Um, I know that we like to perhaps riff a little bit in, um, in local sessions, uh, trying to be a little bit more um, empathetic in our language, for example. But if you start riffing for people who are speaking a second language, you might inadvertently start bringing back all of those colloquialisms and complex terminology that you so carefully weeded out of your mod guides. You may also want to consider using an interpreter for some sessions. We opted to do this for our Turkish sessions, and that was on the advice of our recruiter. And that was a fabulous strategy. In retrospect, we would have benefited from using a recruiter for some of our other sessions as well. While some participants were very keen to practice their spoken English, it was quite a strain on them to discuss complex concepts for an hour in their second or third language. Having an interpreter would have eased that burden and allowed um, them to give much richer responses in their interviews. Um, and I, I was wondering with recruiters whether I would actually have to adjust the timeframe of, um, of our sessions. Uh, I really wasn't sure how much extra time that would take. I've got to say the interpreters were, were really, really professional and probably only added at most another 10 minutes to our sessions. And yeah, look, it was money well spent having them in the session. Obviously, if you choose to use an interpreter, um, this is going to have impl implications on how much you can cover in the session. Um, so, as I said, you might want to think about extending the session or preferably to prioritise your questions. And there's also the issues, of course, of sourcing and paying for interpreters, all of which need to be considered at the project planning phase. I really enjoyed working with interpreters. I'd do it again with a heartbeat um, and I'd certainly do it again for similar projects. While most of the challenges we encountered were in the planning and recruitment phases of the project, on reflection, there are also some things to consider for our interviews. One thing I noticed that really varied across countries and sometimes even within countries was the fidelity of the remote sessions. We did have the advantage of video not being essential for these interviews, but participants still often had to mute their video to save bandwidth if they were struggling with buffering. And conducting multiple interviews per day on flaky connections, we found was quite a struggle for the moderators. 
In fact, despite being pretty standard depth interviews, um, the sessions were far more taxing on the moderators than usual. Um, both Sean and I were surprised at how fatigued we were at the end of the day. We found that we needed to listen far more intently because of so many different accents, some really, really strong and thick, some, some just very, very different from ones we'd heard before. And adding to that, sometimes the poor video quality and that endless, endless screen focus of remote interviews and a simple 60-minute session could end up quite exhausting. Of course, the interviews were also pretty taxing on participants, many of whom were not used to listening, listening and conversing in, in English. Sean and I often saw participants become frustrated by the limitations of expressing complex concepts in English and very often they started losing their concentration towards the end of the interview. So all these factors also need to be considered with a multi-country study. One way to mitigate some of these issues would be to conduct longer interviews, but I think this would actually only end up exacerbating the situation. Instead, I recommend really finessing those mod guides not only to make your questions ultra clear and simple, but to ensure they're easily understood by everyone, no matter what level of English competency they might have. While it's common practice for us to structure our MOG guides to prioritise the most important questions, we never really know how long a participant is going to take to ponder an answer to a question. But this became vital in this kind of study. Simply rushing through the questions to shove everything in just won't work in this situation. I'd also recommend allowing more time between interviews and scheduling fewer interviews to give moderators time to recover and refocus. Of course, this puts pressure on your scheduling, particularly when there's only those limited timeframes for conducting interviews, but building in a longer interview phase for this kind of project is essential. We'd factored in a longer interview phase into our timelines, and even with that built in, it was quite a taxing experience for the moderators. Despite the challenges, this was a really rewarding project, and the interviews went really smoothly. Sean and I really enjoyed speaking to people from so many different countries, and it was such a rare treat to talk to digital developers from around the world to find out how they tick. Ordinarily, these people we would be screening out of our sessions, and this was a really fun project where we actually got to invite them in. While getting through the recruitment interview stage was a pretty intense few weeks for me, and I probably ended up with a few more grey hairs than I'd had previously. At the end of the day, the roadblocks I encountered had very little impact on our overall project timelines and deliverables. But if you're taking on global projects that incorporate multiple countries, don't assume that they're going to roll out in exactly the same way as your local studies. I can't emphasise enough the importance of planning and recruitment in these kinds of projects both for managing your clients' expectations, but also for the sanity of your research team. And obviously, if you can avoid moving house during a project like this, I highly recommend it. Although, of course, we did all live happily ever after, and both moving house and any challenges to my sanity as a result of that project are now a distant memory. Thanks, everyone. 
Thanks, Wella. What a challenge. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah, there we go. Excellent. Um, so a uh, question from uh, Marcelo. Did you prep your interpreters to use non-leading language? Uh, they, they, they actually, um, and again, because I don't speak the multiple languages, so I, I can't put hand on heart and say they followed this, but they were um, briefed about not using um, leading language, but they were also briefed to exactly, so I would say the question in English, and then that question would be asked in the specific language. Uh, and that's where I was a little afraid that the time that would be taken, I was actually just thinking, oh, my gosh, it's going to be double the amount of time because you kind of think I ask a question, they ask a question, participant answers, they translate the answer. And yep. um, But, yeah, I was actually really surprised at how smoothly it all went. The interpreters mm. were so professional. I felt like I was in the United Nations, um, but yeah, it was it was a, a really smooth pro process. Sure, of course, there's going to be extra time, um, and that's where prioritising those um, questions is really important. But we certainly a couple of um, well for, for a lot of sessions we had a very enthusiastic cohort. Participants were happy to stay for another ten minutes uh, and mm. keep talking. I mean, they were talking about their work, so very happy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just I just in retrospect wished I'd done it for some of the other more challenging countries as well. Did you find you needed to be um, more specific in your discussion guide than you might have done otherwise? Absolutely, yeah. and it made me just realise how much we just build into our own natural language and the assumptions that come in our natural language. And that's what I said: if you can get a second and a third eye to, to check those and then don't start riffing as soon as you get into the interview because back in goes all of those or all, all of that nuance that is just lost in translation and in fact, mm. in fact, it's just white noise for your participants. Nice. Um, somebody asked, uh, you mentioned you only used interpreters in Turkey. Did you assess whether specifically seeking out English speakers in the other countries could bias your results? Um, that was always a consideration and we discussed that with the client as well. Um, but I, I guess just, just for the ability to conduct these sessions uh, mm. and, uh, yeah, obviously, as I said, uh, unless we then hired in um, moderators with multiple languages, mm. uh, that that was kind of the, the best we could do in this particular study. Yeah. I think um, sometimes you just need to be aware of the potential for these things rather than being able to necessarily remove or mitigate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously also with the recruiters, uh, you know, and I said to you, I mean, those screeners, there could have been bias in those screeners. I mean, luckily yeah. we then had the opportunity to to watch videos, um, review people. Uh, we obviously got the um, the demographics from our recruiters. Or again, the, the handover of um, that demographic information um, from different recruiters or um, in various countries very very different in the um, deliverables that you get from them as well. So, um, mm. yeah, as I said, I. 
I got a few more gray hairs, but yeah, I humbly learned a hell of a lot as well. Mm. Did you have um, much in the way of um, sort of connection issue? Did technology get in the way of conversations or the, the interviews terribly much? Yeah, look, as I said uh, in my talk, uh, fidelity was certainly an issue. Um, mm. And it was probably more of an issue just because of the intensity of the discussion. This wasn't light fluff. This was very, very complex discussion. Um, these guys were just like riffing on all of these complex, all the complex stacks that they use for their projects. Hey, I've, I've come from a, a, a tech background, but I'm not technical. So just mm. the ability to listen really, really intently to that, but also have a a meaningful discussion with them. I, did, I didn't want to be like fairy floss. I wanted to really engage. My client had really briefed me about a lot of the stacks that their customers use. Uh, so yeah. I learned very quickly um, on the fly about that. But uh, yeah, Fidelity did play like, hey, we got to do this. We didn't have to fly around the world to do face-to-face, -face, but Fidelity certainly um, had a part to play. Yeah, nice. Luella, thank you so much for nice. that. Um, congratulations on what sounds like a, a really uh, challenging but rewarding project. Thank you very much for your time, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks very much.